The Black American Songbook came about because I have so much admiration for people like Linda Kinney, you know, who, you know, do the American Songbook. And I thought, wow, there's a whole nother wealth of music in my culture that I know that I, that is my, of my experience. And I've always, since I started singing in Cork in particular, wanted to share my culture with the people of Cork because we have such a common, I don't know if you say situations in of oppression and, 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 and music and oppression are close cousins. So I wanted to share that music with the people of Cork because I knew you would get it. But so with tell soul me, music, I mean, obviously you have way too many options there for people to include in this. And, you know, the most incredible history. I mean, the history of jazz music is the history of black musicians. To that's a large that, extent. That, that too. Yeah. But yeah. But when I considered the black American songbook, I performed it for a culture night in the Cork Opera House to 539 people, one of the largest audiences that night for culture night. And I said, OK, let's do an overview first. Let's get a taster, a taster menu so people can come back to the restaurant and, 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 and eat everything else, you know, a la carte. So now because of Skinner's Jazz Festival and I'm a part of that, I'm doing the Black American Songbook Volume 2, jazz and the makings of jazz music. Um, but it is very subjective because it's based on my own experiences and I can only perform based on my own experiences. So I will be starting with, um, well, there's a surprise at the beginning and then I'll go into the Negro spirituals, uh, which is the basis of where a lot of music in America started was with Negro spirituals, but well, we know that it started from Western Africa and that influence. But um, I don't have a plethora of, of Western African music that I can perform, nor musicians to perform it. So I'm starting with the Negro spirituals, moving into jazz, the jazz that I listened to in the basement with my daddy, the jazz music that he sang to me, that I became to know and became familiar with in Chicago, and then a separate, whole nother group of artists that I became aware of, like Nina Simone, once I moved to Cork. And just just a, a wonderful, wonderful musicians like Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, Dinah Washington, Nat King Cole. These were the people of my childhood. And only as I became older and in my teen years, I became familiar with soul music. But it was first, jazz was my first stop, apart from the Negro spirituals and gospel. And it was in that order, you know, the Negro spirituals I was familiar with because daddy used to play Mahalia Jackson. The music of Mahalia Jackson was booming on the hi-fi stereo system in my home. So, you know, from that, I said, you know, I have something to work with here. And I met Eileen Gleason, oh, I'd say at this stage, it's about two years ago, maybe even 18 months to two years ago, and said, I have an idea and it's time you know, I've put in my time in Cork and I'm ready to present to the Opera House the music of the Black American Songbook. And she's like, tell me more. I'm really, really grateful to be in a position. You know, it's not the main stage, but it doesn't have to be. No, you know, there's something even quite nice about yeah, having that residency, getting audiences in, and then they really get to be in it with you for exactly. the whole weekend. I get to see everybody's eyes looking back at me. That's and that's kind of the type of performer I am. I'd be a confessionary style performer that relates to the audience and that gets feedback and it's like a back and forth. It's an energy. Mm. And uh, so with an audience of 80 to 100 people, I think it'll be maybe 120 people, 80 to 120 people, I have the opportunity to share, you know, my life experiences and my musical experiences and the artists that I love and that have 
that I've, you know, been brought up on, the music that I was, you know, that was that I sucked as a child, I was a baby, you know, coming on way up. Tell me what it's like as a performer. I mean, these are huge shoes to fill, mm. you know, like Seraphon. Mm. Like, mm. I mean, these are monumental figures in the history yeah, of music. Yeah. Is it uh, is it a little bit daunting as a performer? To incredibly, to yeah. incredibly, because I, I also, <clears throat> as a singer, I understand what my limitations are. Mm-hmm. But your limitations can be your strengths as long as you acknowledge them and utilize them. So my range will be very limited in terms of my musical, what I can sing. So it's a it's a question of the daunting part for me is, you know, and as an artist, am I good enough? Do I have, can I sing those notes? And so, you know, I work with people that love me, that care about me. I work with John O'Brien a lot because he gets me and he knows how to shape the music to fit my voice. This is the composer. John this O'Brien. is my arranger and my friend and my pianist. Yeah. And so, and other friends of mine that would be on the stage with me that are musicians. I did not my band and my friends. So I have um, working with me, Dave Whitler this year, Fiona Calacan and John O'Brien. And we'll be presenting together uh, the the Black American Songbook Volume 2. So you mentioned there your life and kind of weaving your own life mm-hmm. story into mm-hmm. that. But I don't know anything about, I don't mm-hmm. know even how you first got to court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me mm-hmm. what happened. How okay. did you end up here? So I was married at the time to a man that I loved and I, I, I had two children with. We, 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 we brought up two children together. And we, you know, like all marriages had our ups and downs and our struggles and very unaware of my, my sexual identity at that time. Long story short, um, two small children later at two and three, in the midst of like a marriage I was very unhappy in, my husband came home with the idea that, um, and the offer that he had been offered an expatriate assignment, either to Malaysia or to Ireland. And I thought, well, Malaysia sounds exotic, but those people are very tiny. Um, I'm a size 18 or 20 at that stage. My shoe size is like a size eight and a half. I'm talking Irish sizes, not American now. And they won't have any clothes to fit me and I don't speak the language. Ireland is in Europe. I can get to Paris, the place I always wanted to go and visit as a child. My dad's (laughs) name was Paris. Um, I had an affinity for Ireland for some reason. I wanted to come to Ireland. I wanted to come to Ireland. So we did, Ireland was a place um, I got to Ireland within the first year of me moving to Ireland, I met my, my, my wife, who was my best friend, and we fell in love, and we got together, and we created a new family, a new way of living, and a new way of existing, and with our children, with our lives, and we're just still, we're still together, and it's been 20 plus years, and I'm still with the same person. So the first half of my life was with the man. The second half of my life is with my wife. Wow, that's such an amazing story. How old were you when you came to Ireland? Oh my goodness. If I'm 58 now and I came to Ireland 23 years ago. Yeah. That would make me. So that would have been, you would have been 35 then. 35, 36. So your life just changed. Upended it. From from being this totally, uh, this person that was completely oppressed by religion and Homosexuality was a sin. Um, I didn't get homosexuals. I didn't, I didn't believe in them. I didn't understand them. I was prejudiced against them my whole life. My whole life. But also my whole life thinking that women are really pretty. <laughs> and, and, and checking myself before I could wreck myself because realizing that, yeah, they're pretty, but you're not lesbian. 
Yeah. Wow. God, that's amazing. And where did you grow up? Was it Chicago? Chicago, south side of Chicago. And in a church that was a, a Christian church, but very much similar to a Southern Baptist, not a Baptist church, a non-denominational church, but oppressed because, you know, there would be the fire and brimstone preaching that about gays and, you know, you know, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That was part of my upbringing. So I knew that I ha- I couldn't. I couldn't be gay. And even my thinking wasn't gay. It was, and I love men and I love men to this day. Um, I love the energy. Yeah. You know, I don't like the relationship, the sexual relationship part with a man, but I love the energy that, that, that men bring that is often different than what women bring. So I remember I interviewed Martha Reeves before and yes. she told me about her, her singing starting in the, the church. church. Is that the same? Is that true for you? Yes. Yes. Very much so. It started in the church, but the church that I went to, Ellie, it was like you could only sing a cappella because they also had restrictions on instrumentation in the church because David only played with like harps and cymbals and we didn't have harps and cymbals, so it had to be a cappella. My tuning had to be pretty good because, you know, it's a cappella singing. I didn't sing with instrumentation until primary school with the piano in my music class because I went to private music school. So my musical training happened at a very early age and because my parents sent me to, which is crazy, Catholic school because the Catholic schools in Chicago would have been private. They didn't want me to go into the public schools because they wanted me to have a, a better quality of education. So I met Mr. Neal, who was my first teacher in music. And he was all about touching my face to shape my lips in the right way and to enunciate my words and to mind my phrasing and things that I'm, I'm aware of now that was actually music lessons. I was having music lessons at nine years of age, but I never had formal training in music. I never learned to read a musical note. He tried to teach us, you know, but uh, that, that part just didn't sink in. It was a bit like math, something I struggled with. Might, I might one day, I'm not, I'm not writing it off. I might one day go back and learn how to read music. But for, for, for what I received from him was an education in music and performance. And I got my first professional gig at 13 years of age through the Chicago CETA program, which was a program for families that, would, that they would consider had a certain income. And I applied for this job and it was going to be production in the summer and I'll be paid to do this work. So that was actually my first paid gig. Wow. And one of the songs that I'm singing in the jazz festival, I sang on the stage at at 13 years of age. Tell me what song that was. It's a song by Duke Ellington called I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good. Oh, wow. So 13 to sing that. Yeah. It was powerful. And I (laughs) stand in ovations and I I got the book. I actually got the book, I'd say, Ellie, probably in the third grade when we were singing um, in school and... It was a song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. And it's sung by, that I live by to this day. Dionne Warwick sang the song. I think Bacharach wrote, wrote the song. And uh, I remember singing, and I was singing different than everybody else. And the teacher was like, let's just, shh, shh, let's just hear what Karen's, let's just hear Karen. Karen, will you? And I just sang. And I just, you know, and her, her reaction and the, the, the students, the classroom, the reaction gave me a love for performing. So were the you church. performing when you came to Ireland? So what happened? So from the third grade and then to primary school, I got my first gigs. And then it was like secondary schools. And I was singing in like the talent shows, the school musicals <clears throat> and all of that. But when I got married, 
because of religion, it was not really a, like, kind of like Mahalia Jackson and kind of like Nina Simone, secular music really would not have been the preference for me to be singing in the church. It, the preference would be to be to sing gospel music or classical music. And also I got married and I thought that was the, the end all be all and music just went by the wayside. So I never sang again with the exception of maybe one or two family events until I came to Ireland. And how that came about was I was at a house party, well, a dinner party. And it was the first dinner party I was invited to by my neighbors. And you guys have this tradition sometimes when you have a few jars that <laughs> we call the do. noble call. Yeah. And so they, they, someone sang a song and they explained the game goes that the person sings first and then they appoint the person to sing next. And I was appointed. And I thought, why they call me first? It's because I'm black. <laughs> they, they just think I can sing because I'm black. So I just chose to sing a Barbara Streisand song, Evergreen. And they were like, wow. And they were like, sing another song. I said, that's not the game. The game is I get to say who sings next. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I'll go on, girl. You know what you like. And uh, I was then, say, I sang, uh, it was Aretha Franklin, Natural Woman. But that's quite the song to take on. So it? I sang that song. Yeah. And at the time, I would have been younger, so my range would have been even higher. Than, you know, as you get older, your range changes. The tone of your voice, the, the timbre, everything changes. But I'm, I'm very happy with where I am today. But then, I didn't have the experience to know what to do with all that. You know? And I sang that song. And my, my, my former husband was there at the dinner party. They were all drinking. He never would take a drink. And I wasn't pretty much allowed to take a drink either. Because it was a sin to drink. It was a sin to smoke. It was a sin to be gay. It was a sin to, you know, go to nightclubs. So I wasn't doing any of that. But the lady said to me, one of the ladies at the, at the dinner party said, Karen, there's a band playing at the back of the Half Moon, at the back of the opera house called the Half Moon. And you need to go and meet this band. You need to sing with them. And my former husband basically said, well, you know, she doesn't really do that. And the lady said, oh, oh, it's like they clicked. And I said, okay. So they waited. said, come on, Karen, we're, we're tidy up the kitchen. And that was, of course, what my position was in life was to be the good wife, to be the servant, to be the one that holds up the man. And that's who I was. And I was okay with doing that at that time because I didn't know any better. When you get married at 19, you know, you got a handsome, tall, black, handsome, gorgeous man. You, you think, oh, this is what I'm going to do in the kitchen. And they're like, Karen, you got to meet this band. So we're going to go to dinner. And they wink, right? I'm like, you mean like I'm going to disobey my husband and go to a nightclub? And I thought about it, like you have to meet this band. So I said, okay, I agreed. So that was the beginning of my wayward ways and I'm never going to apologize for it ever since. So they brought me into the half room. I met Owen Regan, the guitarist, Reggie, we call him in Cork. And they were going on a break. And I walked up, the girls pushed me up to go and talk to him. And I said, is it possible I can sing a song with you guys? And he was like, you want to sing a song with us? And I was like, yeah. And he whistles the lads back to come back. And I sang um, Killing Me Softly by the Fugees. So you just got up there and then and I, on I, rehearsed and you just sang and with And I them. never sang with a band in my life. Oh my God, Karen, that's so amazing. <laughs> that takes some balls to do that. 
I did it. Were you nervous? You know what? I was such a fool. I probably wasn't. <laughs> That's so brilliant. So you just got up and sang. Yeah, it was, it, it was like my story. Yeah. It was my, it was, I was singing my story. It was what I was meant to be doing, you know? And the crowd's reaction was unbelievable. And I was invited then to come to a jam to sing with the band, to practice. And I didn't know what a jam, what do you mean come to a jam? I didn't even know the lingo of musicians. And I went as a black woman coming from racist America to a group of four white guys on a, in a, on a back country road by myself. And I started rehearsing, not knowing I was rehearsing to be in the band. And next thing I was in the band and we were the flying monkeys. You know, from The Wizard yes. of Oz, please release yes. the flying monkeys. <laughs> and boy, did we have monkey cages everywhere, <laughs> all over the country, up and down the country. And I stayed with them for a very, very long time. However, I wanted to do different styles of music. I wanted to write, do the kind of shows that I do right now, tell stories, you know, shows that would be more or less scripted, but not quite so scripted. Shows that would tell the stories of the music and of my life and and kind of thread and weave stories through the music and, 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 and bring it together. And, and I, want Nina, I wanted to do the music of Nina Simone. And they didn't want to be uh, a tribute band. They yeah. saw it as. Yeah, yeah. So I marched into the Cork Opera House, as you do. And I met Jerry Barnes, who was the CEO at the time of the Cork Opera House. And I explained to him, I wanted to do a Nina Simone show, but I wanted to do it with a difference. I wanted to tell my story. And I wanted the music of Nina Simone to punctuate the story. So I wrote the Nina in me. He said to me, he steered me in the right direction. He said, you need to go and meet John O'Brien. I said, my daughter's choir master. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I, like, why him? Because he's classically trained and you're a soul singer, jazz singer. And I think the marriage between the two of you would be great. Met John in what used to be called Ancubine on the corner, which used to be the place Pat used to run. What was the name of it back in the day on the corner? The lobby. The lobby. I walked in there and I had a meeting with John O'Brien Arrange. I ordered a bottle of Prosecco, as you do. At this stage, I'm drinking and doing all kinds of stuff. I'm lesbian, I'm drinking, I'm doing all this stuff. <laughs> My wife had introduced me to the music of Nina Simone, a person whom I never heard of. Hang on, you never heard of Nina Simone? Never heard of Nina Simone. That's incredible, though. Yeah, because she was blacklisted in America because of the music that she sang was politicized. It was considered divisive to yeah. America. You know, yeah. uh, it was a poor women, Mississippi Goddamn, Turning Point. These are the songs she was, she was singing songs that told the truth. It was almost like a, a risk for radio stations to play her music mm. yeah. in case she incited hatred. Yeah. You know, so I never heard of her music. One song she sang was Young, Gifted, and Black, but I didn't hear her version. I heard the version of Aretha Franklin. Anyway, I'm doing this show now, Nina Simone's show. It's a success. It tours for years and years and years and years on the back of the Opera House supported, whether it made money or not. They supported me, the Opera House. Jerry Barnes gave me my first big, big break. And I've been on my, on my feet, landed on my feet ever since. Hmm. So that's how I started singing in Ireland. So you, and you said racist America there. To be in the country that you built, that your, that your forefathers built, your daddy, your mama, your uncles, your whole family built, and to be, have this glass ceiling, to have this oppressive government, to have police forces that are killing people is one thing. 
that's my country. It's harder to take. And I have a greater ability to change lives here, believe it or not, and racist thinking here by just being and telling the Black American Songbook. You know what I'm saying? Whereas in America, I wouldn't have that same opportunity. In America, people live differently. Like there's the Black neighborhood and there's the white neighborhood. You go to work and you work with white people. You go home and you live with Black people. It's kind of yeah. like Northern Ireland. Segregation. Segregation. Yeah. Very much like Northern Ireland. The Protestants, they might work together with the Catholics. They might even meet in the city center and have a drink. with. If they're open-minded. If they're <laughs> open-minded. And I guess I'm meeting the open-minded people. I, you know, I'm over trying to change the minds of people who don't want to change. And I'm all about enriching the lives and being enriched by people who are different than me. You mentioned there, um, you know, Nina Simone and the power of those songs. And you mentioned bringing the Black American Songbook to Cork audiences. Do you think that music has a role to play in broadening people's minds? Absolutely. Absolutely. One example was the, the last gig that I performed at the Cork Opera House last month. And what I saw, I was singing songs that were Negro spirituals. I was singing songs that were and telling stories about black people. And I saw people weeping and people laughing and people clapping and people stepping out of their own box. Because, you know, sometimes Irish people are afraid to have emotions. So they may not buy tickets to my gig because I might make them cry. <laughs> I might make them feel, you know. So, you know, it, you have to be prepared to feel because I'm going to tell the truth as I know it. And I'm also going to listen to your truth and be influenced by that when I'm telling these stories. So it's not my job to make me feel guilty and feel sorry for poor black old Karen Underwood. It's my job to just tell the story. Let, let it sink in. See if it means something to you. And the next time, maybe you might see a Nigerian on the streets or see someone in direct provision, understand it a bit different. That's how we change lives. As a lesbian, I'm not going to change lives that much by segregating myself in a lesbian and gay community and doing a gay pride march. I'm going to change lives living right here in this neighborhood where I live with my wife and speaking to my next door neighbors and dropping off a, a loaf of beer bread and Seeing that I'm just like you, there's no reason to be afraid of me because of my sexual identity. Just like there's no reason to be afraid of me because I'm black. In fact, you can enrich my life and I can enrich your life. That's all very inspiring stuff to hear. I mean, for your kids growing up, did they experience racism in school and stuff like that? They did. They did on some levels. But again, they were protected because, you know, um, they went to, to, to very prestigious schools. Um, but at the same time, like there was a time my son, I remember when he was living, um, went to um, a camp. He was in a summer camp with my, with my daughter and someone called him the N-I-G-G-E, no hard R word. And my daughter punched him and I thought she was going to be kicked out of camp, but they didn't kick her out of camp. The other child was actually, sorry to say, was in trouble, not, not my daughter. Because you can't be doing that. And I explained to her, you can't be punching people either because of what they say. But I think her emotions probably got the best of her. And she was a year older and it was her, her little brother in physicality and in, because, you know, Christiana's really, really tall. And so she would have been probably taller than the little boy that she punched. But anyway, uh, lesson learned, you know, 
don't underestimate Christiana. Don't underestimate people and lesson learned to Christiana. No matter what people say, you can't put your hands on them. So she yeah. was told that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So yeah, there was racism in that regard. Um, he had that experience. I'm sorry that he had that experience. I've had maybe less than a handful of racist incidents in my time in Ireland. I remember one time I was uh, trying to stay in the country. My husband and I had separated and I didn't have a visa because my visa was directly attached to his visa. So I had no right to be in Ireland, but I had fallen in love with this woman. I was going to stay in Ireland. I was going to raise my children in Ireland and I had to find a way to stay. And, but in a way that would interest me. So I started studying iTech um, diplomas and I did a diploma in reflexology. I did another one in aromatherapy, another one in massage therapy because I was going to be working with autistic children, children on the spectrum. I thought these would be good treatments to be able to provide to the children that I would be working with. And it would benefit me to be able to stay in Ireland as a student. And I could work 20 hours a week as a student. So I went in to sit an exam and a man was standing outside the, the hotel, the Metropole, and he was drunk. And, and he was like, he called me a nigger. And, and I looked at him and I said, yeah, I might be a nigger, but you're drunk and I'm going to sit an exam. And that allowed me to release the tension of what he to mm. take the power out of it. Yeah. So you so nigger is a word. Yeah. You know, like drunk is a word, but you're living by your word. You're drunk. I'm not living by nigger. I'm not gonna ever live by that word. So I can take the power out of it. So that was one time. Another time I was in traffic and I, I made a boo-boo on in traffic and my windows were down in the summertime and I, I made a mistake and I was an effing nigger that time too. And it hurt. It hurt because it was like, okay, I made a traffic mistake and I'm a nigger because I made a traffic mistake. It hurts. But racism isn't always as overt as those few times, a handful of times that I've been called the N-word. Racism is things like direct provision to me. Racism is, you know, assuming someone's status based on the color of their skin. Um, racism is treating othering it's othering it's othering and I don't like it and you know I do what I can I can't be on every platform to save everyone who is you know as other than society but when I'm called upon to give service to things like that it's my obligation as an artist you know to, to change that it's like James Baldwin once said my role as an artist is the same as the role of a lover to make you aware of things that you wouldn't be otherwise aware of. So I kind of live by that. I kind of live by the, the Christian principles of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm. And that's bigger than just word of mouth. It's in the life that you live. Do you think you have more of those Christian principles in your life now than you did when you Absolutely. were a church movement? A hundred thousand percent. Because, you know, Christianity others people. Religion, others, people, period, point blank and simple. But living life based on a spiritual principle that I'm no better than a, than a, than a slug. Everything has a purpose. It means that I'm going to respect the slug. I'm not going to use the slug pellets. Even though as a gardener, I really want to. I'm, I'm not going to treat people badly, you know, because they, they've done something to, to hurt me. Like that slug did something to hurt my vegetables. 
I'm going to, I'm going to try to see a way around them that, that they can live and I can live together. You know, even if they're bad, even if they're racist, you know, even if they're bad, I'm going to try to do the best that I can do by them. Maybe they'll see something. Maybe I can show that light. You know, it's like this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. It, it's a, it's in the life that you live. It's not in the book. Do you mind talking about what happened to your son? My son would have struggled with a number of issues. Adoption was one of them. He was born from my heart. Um, he was not born from my womb. Um, I tried to help him find his biological mother. He was born addicted to crack cocaine. Um, I was a punitive parent because he was a, a black man. I was put in the world. So I still have that black thing. You know, I have to raise a strong black man because the world is going to be against him. So somehow in the black community, we learn this punishment way of thinking. Mm. Punishment is for criminals. Discipline is for our children. Mm. And discipline is love. It's studying. It's having a, a format in place for them to, to become self-reliant. Yeah. So rather than let my son make those mistakes that he may have needed to make for himself, I was going to try to save him from all those mistakes. How old was he when he died? He was 18. 18. He was 18 years of age when, and I'll, I'll, I'll share this much too for parents. He was 18 when he emptied out my cupboards of medications. So I might've had some, some antidepressants that were in the cupboard. I might've had some asthma medication in the cupboards, some uh, paracetamol, uh, anti-inflammatories. And he took from the text message that I read when he was texting his friend. 70 tablets. So if this gets out to the, to the broad community, love your children in discipline, not with punishment. So my son would have had issues and I would have had issues as a parent. And for whatever reason, none of it is all the reason. Well, I'll never know why he did what he did, but I just know he's not here anymore. And, and I know that it's important for me to say to parents, if your child is going to get 150 points on their leaving cert, it doesn't matter. You want your child to be here, whether they're standing at McDonald's and saying, welcome to McDonald's, can I take your order? Or my name is Dr. Irby Underwood. You still want them to be here regardless. So I'll just leave that there if you don't yeah. mind. You have the most beautiful garden that we're sitting next to you <laughs> and you have a garden for Irby that you... I do. Yeah. Yeah. Irby's garden was made... Uh, I got the gardening book maybe about... We're in this house since 2006. So I didn't start the garden until like 2008 and it was just grass and it was a grizzlinia hedge and I started gardening and it was getting more and more beautiful. And then Irby died and I just couldn't garden. I couldn't. And then I had hired a gardener to come like a few times a year to trim the grizzlinia hedge, to prune the wisteria that started growing, which is, which is like the little shop of horrors now, which I don't regret. Um, and I called her up. Maybe the spring, two, he died in January 2012. So maybe it was January 2014. No, it would have been 2013. And I said, I want, I want a memorial border for my, for my son. And she looked at me, she said, okay, Karen. And she went out there and she dug the border for him. And I decided that in his border, nothing could be in his border but white flowers. Nothing but white. And it's funny because uh, I planted all white daffodils and I planted white lilies and, you know, all white different. So that I would have something 
year round, Helleborus, that would be white. Everything would be come up, but it had to be eternal. It had to be year around. Wasn't enough like the rest of my border can die off. But Irby's border has to always have something white in it. But as life will have it, I live in Ireland. And foxgloves started popping up in my son's white border. <laughs> Poppies started popping up in my son's white border. And for years and years and years, I just yanked them out and yanked them out and yanked them out and yanked them out and got angry. Or I would buy a daffodil in a pack and it would say that it was white, but it wasn't white enough. Or I bought a rose and my mother-in-law bought me a, a rose, a David Austin white rose, but it had a pink throat. So it had to be moved. And I was religious about just changing it. It had to stay white. Until it took me about, because he's gone now, I'm coming up to his 10th anniversary, so it's very, very big for me. Must have been about a year and a half, two years ago that I decided, this is God telling me. And I do believe in God, but I, my, my God is a, a God of all understanding. It's not the God of the Christian God. It's the God of a tree, the God of a flower, the God of love. It's telling me. Foxgloves get to live here too, Karen. You got to let some life in now. You got to stop living. Oh God, hold on a second. Sorry. Do you understand? No, it's okay. You have to stop um, controlling everything yeah. and controlling your grief and let it go. Yeah. Let it go. So yeah, sometimes the foxgloves jump up, but I noticed that the foxgloves are purple. It's funny because everything that jumped in the border was purple or blue. In the gardener's mind, purple is blue. And my son was a boy. I'm able to let the blue flowers in, <laughs> just the blue ones. You know, and all the, the different things that you've gone through, I'm going to take it back to uh, something that might be a bit of a cliche, but something that you mentioned at the start, which was about history of adversity, feeding right. music. And you quite clearly have your own history of adversity. What do you do with that? Are you able to express it through your voice? Um, the, the history of adversity is relying on my ancestors, not just my black ancestors, my human ancestors. How did Irish people deal with oppression of the English? How do black Americans deal with oppression of white Americans, slavery? And I think the answer for me is just getting up every morning, getting up every morning and saying, I'm living, I'm living, I'm not gonna exist, I'm gonna live. and Resilience is just getting up and making my cup of coffee, not wanting to leave this planet because my son is gone. Mm. Um, not wanting to just give up on school because I remember uh, I didn't, I'm going to go back a bit if you don't mind and you can, you can edit this. But I remember being at school and 13 and my parents sent me to Catholic school. And it was at the time of the busing program in America. And my parents felt that once again, they had paid for private school for primary, so I was going to go private in secondary. And I was, but I was eligible to go to a very prestigious white school for free, but I would have to be bussed. My mother said, I'm not busting her. She's not going to be a part of that because it's a system I don't believe in. So I'd rather pay, and my parents were working class. I'd rather pay for her to go to school that I'm, that I'm choosing to send her to, even though it's in a white neighborhood. Just in case listeners don't know what the what you mean by the busing program. Oh yeah, the busing program in America started in Boston. And it was a concept that for blacks to be educated properly, they would send them to better white schools rather than improve the schools in the black community. Because in tax, the, the educational system in America, the public school system is tax-based. And because blacks are tend to be 
you know, lower class in terms of money, um, we wouldn't have the same facilities in our schools. Like they would have, I've, never, I've never seen a computer in a black school in America. And I graduated in 1981. But white schools of the same, counter, my counterparts would have had computers. So my parents sent me to an all white school. I, was, I wasn't bused. I was sent on a bus that my parents paid for, but I had to go to a, through a white neighborhood to get there. So uh, I remember one day on the bus, and they, they sent me to the school that was Catholic because they said, well, at least they'll have a heart because it's religious. And I remember my first day going to school and on the, on, the, on the toilet, I was sitting on the toilet and somebody wrote, niggers go home. A girl, we were learning how to pass a basketball in gym and PE. We call gym PE is a saying word. And PE, and she was tossing the ball and she tossed it really hard. And she got a heart, and she was like, nigga want a watermelon, nigga want a watermelon, nigga want a watermelon. And I remember going home from school one day, I'm sitting on the back of the bus, and I had sneezed. And my mama raised me, honey. So I covered up my mouth, and I said, excuse me. And a young man got up, the bus has two exits, the front exit and the back exit. And the man standing at the back exit. And he was there for a long time. He was looking at me kind of strange, but I took no note. And he went <laughs> into my face, calling me a nigger. I was 13 years of age. And I remember, so you said, how do you deal with that adversity? So how do you do it? How do you deal with it? I didn't drop out of school. I didn't give up, but I did leave that school. And I did go to school in my own community because I couldn't be fighting every day being called nigger, having cars, adults, driving them on the cars in the car park, because the public car park, honking the horns and spitting and yelling at, at, at children, at children. And this is 1977 in America. So I, what I did was I stayed in school. I educated myself. I went on to try to have as happy of a life as I can have, despite the adversity. And the only way to do that is to keep living and to keep loving and to look at the people that love you back and forget about the ones that don't. You can't live your life with people who hate you. I'm even doing that today as an adult, not living my life for people who don't like me, but focusing on the people who do and learning to love other people. Through that, through that, through that, because hurt people hurt people and people do that and behave that way out of fear. So it's something wrong with them. There's not something wrong with me. So that's how I kind of live my life after Irby died, adversity. I just got real busy, girl. I got real busy. I marched into the Cork Opera House and I called Mary Hickson realizing that you guys have the tradition of the month's mind. And now one Catholic priest came to my door to say, to extend the hand of friendship or condolences. The only people that came to me really was Church of Ireland. I had Daniel from the CUMH hmm. to call to me to, to say, are you okay? I had Paul Colton, you know, who has been in touch with me since, but I had no Catholic priest at all in this parish where I live. And I'm not going to say where that is, but I remember calling Eileen Gleason and ringing her up and saying, Eileen, I want to have my son's mass mind in the Cork Opera House. She was like, what? I said, you know, I want to have his mass mind in the Cork Opera House. She said, what do you mean? Well, I want to do a charity fundraiser for, for Pieta House. She's like, okay, call me in a week. I know she hung up the phone and thought, this chick has flipped. She's, she's in grief. She's not thinking. Her son's only dead a week. 
How could she be planning anything? Well, we planned it. It happened. We did it. We raised about 15000 that night for Pieta House. And I've been fundraising for them ever since. And I've been, I started another charity of my own. But that was, that was in grief. That was insanity. How can I manage a charity when I can't even manage my own bank book? I don't know. But I had a charitable organization for a time. But I started. Great intentions. Great ideas. But really, we need to leave that to people who do that. And why did I have to do one of my own when Pieta was right there? So I can support those charities that are already existing. That's how I do it. I stay busy. The best thing we can do when we come across situations is to think about somebody other than ourselves. There's a time I need to think about my grief and it comes up and there's not a damn thing I can do about it. Like it just happened just there a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I teared up, I'm, you know. But as long as I stay focused on somebody other than myself, like stopping you from, from what happened to me happening to your son and somebody else's son or somebody else's daughter, as long as I'm thinking about somebody else, doing living for others, those are Christian principles that will, that will see us through. What about singing? Where does singing fit in? Singing is all is up it, in does that. Does it heal? All yeah. up. Singing and telling those stories is cathartic. Is that the right word? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a baptism by fire. It's getting up on that stage and, and it's knowing that you're moving people and they're moving you. It's telling the stories. It's, you know, the fame allows me an opportunity to say things that other people can't say to have a platform to get these messages across. If I didn't have some element of fame, we wouldn't be having this conversation and I couldn't be telling these stories to you about how I was affected by racism, suicide, my sexual identity. All of it comes full circle. As long as, long as I keep the focus, this life is not just about me. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for other people. And on that note, tell me what it's going to be like to have a residency this year for the Jazz Festival. Because you've been the undisputed queen of the Jazz Festival for many the year. In terms of what happens on the Cork circuit, because mm -hmm. this year, you know, there, a lot of the international acts won't be making it over because mm -hmm. we're still in the kind of post-COVID mm -hmm. crisis mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. But now you have something that is like, does it feel like a, a recognition for you to just have that residency for the whole weekend? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's the right, it's the right residency for me. Um, I have walked around the Guinness Jazz Festival dragging music stands and sheets of music and clothes to change in and towels and stuff for, I say 20 years. And it's taken me that long to get a residency for the Guinness Jazz Festival at the back of the Cork Opera House. And I'm so proud of it. I'm so glad that, you know, that my worth is being seen. And I just hope people come out and support it because I need the support. I need the people to buy the tickets. I need them to come and not just for me, but so that I can employ other, I, I employ, I'm employing, I'm able to employ three other musicians because of this. I'm able to pay them well because of this. I'm able to have a bit of money myself because of this. You know, and so for me, it means the world to be able to to have to sh to share this music with a set list that I have curated with some artists that I that I that I had when I was at home in Chicago and some of the artists I've got to know at home here in Ireland. You said home twice. Yeah. <laughs> at home in Chicago and at home here in home Ireland. Home here in Ireland. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're going to stay here for the rest of your life? Yes, definitely. Myself and my wife have talked about spending some time in America, um, probably sooner rather than later, while we can still, while we don't need walking sticks to do it. Because I'm 58 now and she's, you know, you know, we're, we're, get, we're getting up there. Um, we still have the energy and my family's still around. But like, you know, things are changing. I have my Auntie Cake, who's my favorite aunt, is struggling at the moment with her memory. And she's like a second mother to me. So I need to go home and see her. So I'm going home next, well, the end of this month to see her and spend time with her. So more and more trips like that will be a necessity. But Ireland is my home in more ways than one. I'll drop this little tidbit of information on you. Back in 2013 or 14, I had my DNA testing done. And my DNA testing revealed that I am indeed 17% Irish and English. That's a lot of Irish blood. And we know where that came from. So obviously I had an affinity for Ireland. I remember the first day coming here, uh, Ellie, um, and I was in a limousine and a big old bouquet of this like big hamper was given to me as a gift at the airport. And I was escorted to my limousine and brought to my accommodation. And uh, well, that's just what I mean about landing on the right side of the social economic track. I had a lot more money then than I have now because I had a man, you know, that, you know, that had was an executive for a company and blah, blah, blah. But I remember uh, driving from Cork Airport and seeing like primroses. And I remember saying, flowers in the summertime, I ain't never going back. You've been listening to an arts and culture podcast for Tripe and Rasheen with me, Ellie O'Byrne. If you like what you hear on Tripe and Rasheen, remember that you can always subscribe for just eight euros per month to support our work. And you can also help us spread the news on social media. We're on at Tidrasheen on Twitter and Tripe and Rasheen on Facebook and Instagram. Tripe and Rasheen.